Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Good morning. You're listening to Insight, a show about empowering our community. I'm Lorraine Ballard Morrow. We'll tell you about a free soccer program that supports kids' path to a healthy lifestyle in college. Black Tie Gay Bingo, the most fun you can have at a black tie event. It benefits the AIDS Fund Philly, but first. We tend to talk about trauma treatment in terms of the individual, but what about community trauma? There are resources that can support us during these times of trouble, and we're going to be talking to someone who's going to tell us all about what is available to us, Yolanda Hughes. She's Director of Trauma Response and Emergency Preparedness for the Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services. Thank you so much for joining us today. And tell us, what is it that you do? Today, I just want to talk about the network of neighbors and how we support communities who have been impacted by violence. What sort of resources do you bring to bear? And when can we tap into some of those services and and supports? I just want to kind of clarify, and I'm actually getting used to our new name. We were originally called Network of Neighbors Responding to Violence. As things have changed, as our unit has grown, what we have realized is that we don't just respond to incidents of violence, but we respond to any incidents that the community deems as traumatic. So that has caused us to change our name to Network of Neighbors, a Trauma Response Network. And that's actually a very new concept to our city. It's nothing that we've heard before. Mm. But the focus of the Network of Neighbors is that we support the community, whatever they deem to be as traumatic for them. It's really up to the community to decide what is overwhelming for them and when to request support from the network. So I like to say that we are responding to incidents and we're not reacting to them. That's very a, different. Yeah, that's very interesting. I wonder if you can tell us what that distinction really means. So what that means is that our support is very intentional. It requires us to take more time. It requires us to build trust with the community. It also means that um, we are reducing trauma by responding more effectively to it. So when we say we're responding to trauma or traumatic incidents to communities, we define communities very loosely. So to us, communities include neighborhoods, blocks, social groups, school, workplace, et cetera. So people often say, okay, you support communities following traumatic incidents, but what does that mean and what do you actually do? We know that one traumatic incident can impact several communities. If we were to talk about the recent tragedy that we experienced in our city, the Fairmount Fire, mm-hmm. you think about the Fairmount Fire, not only were the neighbors on the block impacted, but also the schools that the children attended, the daycares that the children attended, the first responders that were on scene, the teachers who taught students, right? So, You have all of them are considered multiple communities. So when you talk about the network, we identify them as broader 
impacted communities. Mm. So not the family members directly, but the broader impacted community, people who had a different type of relationship. Well, that's very interesting that you say that because uh, we often forget that something that becomes like a big news story, like the Fairmont Fire, isn't just about that family, but there's just a whole uh, ripple effect that happens not only with the family, but all the people that are connected in some ways. Um, some of the institutions, the teachers, as you mentioned, the daycare centers, the neighbors, all those folks. That seems to be such a big job that you have taken on and a big responsibility. Can you give us some idea of exactly how you address something like that, which is a traumatic situation that does spread out among many different communities? How do you begin to tackle that? The first thing that we do, we have a model that we call, we refer to it as the ASK model, A-S-K. We only support communities when we are invited in to do so. So that's another distinction um, of how we are separate and different from crisis response, because crisis response shows up on scene because something has happened. The network only provides support when we are invited in by the community. I like to use this example. Let's say you're having a get together over your house. Someone shows up unannounced that you don't know. They ring your doorbell. They want to come to the get together. I'm sure you're not going to let that person in because you don't know them. And you don't trust them. Now, if that same person showed up to your house with your best friend, of course you would let them in because they are with your best friend. And that's actually how the network of neighbors works. If we are to support a community, we have to be invited in and we have to have a community contact because that community contact can help us to support the community. Mm -hmm. So that we're not just showing up. We're not just there to provide support. The community doesn't know us or trust us. So why would they do that? So in all levels of what we do, we always make sure we are including choice. Choice creates safety. And when a person has been impacted by trauma, their safety has been shattered as a result of the traumatic incident, which is why we work so hard with creating safety and building trust with community members. So when we support communities, it's not a quick process because we are actually building trust with the community. And what that means is that community member is providing us with all the information about how their community is impacted, what supports their community needs. So the community's voice is always paramount in the process. It sounds like what's what's very important is that you have the buy-in and the acceptance of the community in order to really be effective. And and so clearly every incident, every uh, situation that involves trauma is going to be unique to that particular situation. So, okay, you get the buy-in and then what happens? Then we have a model that we use called post-traumatic stress management. And that model actually is a series of either community meetings or group discussions, whatever the community um, wants. And in those group discussions, we're actually having conversation with community members to talk about how they have been impacted as a result of the situation that has occurred. The purpose of those group discussions is for community members to get together They're with community members that they know and trust. We also help to reduce stress and isolation because when you've been impacted by trauma, we tend to isolate. We kind of don't want to be around other people. 
And we also help the community to begin their healing process and to utilize their natural supports that they already have existing. Mm -hmm. Because when we've been impacted by trauma, all we can think about is a trauma. And sometimes we do forget about the natural supports that we have that can help us through that process. So all of our groups are free. All services that we do are free. And they happen right in the community. Right. Wherever the community wants to feel safe is where we have those group discussions. Right. And it's certainly important for people to share their experiences, their feelings. And as you say, sometimes we tend to shut down when we're in the face of trauma. Now, um, you talk about how important it is for a trusted member of the community to bring you all in. So give us an example of how people would contact you. Say there is an incident or there is a situation in which a community really needs that help. And then someone who is that trusted person says, okay, let's see what's out there, what's available. What would they do? So we actually have um, an email address, networkofneighbors at phila.gov. So sometimes individuals email us. And we also have a phone number, which is 267-233-4837. And what happens, people can email or call us. And once they call us, we start the process of talking with them. Sometimes, Lorraine, people just call us for advice and best practices. So I can give you an example in the sense where schools may say, we had a student that passed away. What do we do with their desk? Mm. What do we do with their locker? How long should we keep the memorial up? So sometimes people are just looking for um, trauma-informed approaches or best practices. It's not always a response. Again, I can't stress again, it's really what the community wants and what's best for them. It sounds like a very important resource that you do provide in these instances that can vary from community to community, from incident to incident. And it sounds like what you do is you you get the buy-in from the community and you tailor your response to that community. Uh, it sounds like a very important um, resources that you do provide. And it's wonderful to know that they're available. If, again, people would like to know more, share with us how they find out, how they contact you. We can be contacted at the Network of Neighbors, all one word, at phila.gov. And the phone number is 267-233-4837. I also want to mention that this intervention that we use, post-traumatic stress management, is not therapy. Is actually helping to facilitate a conversation, helping people to learn how to talk about their trauma and how they were impacted in a very concrete way. We train community members in this model. So it's not just myself and my team, but we actually train community members so that community members can support members in their own community. Mm. So we will be offering a training this year. So definitely if anyone is interested, I encourage them to Email us at networkofneighbors at phila.gov or to give us a call at 267-233-4837. The training is free. And once you attend the training, you will learn the interventions that we utilize to support communities. And when is that training going to take place? The training will take place in April, April the 4th through April the 7th. Wonderful. Lots of resources that are available to our community. Hopefully, uh, those who are listening to this interview 
will now know that there is a place to turn. Yolanda Hughes, who is Director of Trauma Response and Emergency Preparedness at the Department of Behavioral Health and Intellectual Disability Services, thank you so much for all that you do. Thank you. You're listening to Insight. The SWAG, a fast-growing Philadelphia soccer program, reaches over 2,000 inner-city young people of color every year and is encouraging the city's most vulnerable youth to develop a passion for soccer that could ultimately lead them to a successful path to a healthier lifestyle, school, collegiate scholarships, potentially a professional career to tell us all about it, is its founder, Nick Bibbs, Director of Coaching for The Swag, a former soccer standout, at Syracuse University and a West Philly native. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks for having me. Let's set the table on what soccer means to the city of Philadelphia. A lot of times I think people think about soccer programs as being a suburban phenomenon and uh, the kids in Philadelphia not so much into soccer as maybe they might be into football or basketball. Talk a little bit about what your thoughts are around all of that. Definitely in the city of Philadelphia, basketball and football are dominant. They're the dominant sports without question. And soccer, there's this perceived notion. Well, it's actually very true. Pay to play is a big part of kids getting involved in soccer. And it's the reason why a lot of children of color or children in the areas that we're working in choose not to participate in the game. So we're we're trying to change that. We're trying to change the landscape here, give these kids exposure to the beautiful game and, and, and growing the sport in these neighborhoods. Well, let's talk a little bit about Nick Bibbs. You were a soccer standout at Syracuse. What got you into soccer in the first place? It's interesting. You know, I was a football and basketball player at my younger ages. You know, th- those were the sports that, you know, everyone played. And when I went out to the street, you know, on my block that I, I played those as well. My stepdad at the time uh, was a Jamaican guy. He loved the game of soccer and kind of introduced me to the game. And so I started picking it up and I started enjoying it. And not only did I start enjoying it, I I realized that I'm I'm actually pretty good at this. So <laughs> I continued the game. I my love for the game grew at a certain point. I said, you know, this is this is what I want to do. Yeah, I think soccer has uh, obviously been uh, incredibly popular, not in the United States as it is in Europe and and South America and Jamaica and countries outside of this country. Um, So you find that uh, that there's a great interest there. But in the United States, uh, not as much, but that's growing with uh, teams like the Philadelphia Union. And what your program does is not only does it get kids involved in a healthy exercise which is always positive, but also it's more than that. It's really about giving them mentorship and, and pushing them and uh, supporting them in their personal growth. And I wonder if you can tell us more about that. For me and my staff, I, I think there's three key goals to the program. One, what we just kind of discussed is providing exposure to the beautiful game and growing the sport in these neighborhoods. Two, improving the quality of life by providing program programming for these kids to stay active and and influenced by positive role models. And then the third phase or key goal for us is develop 
a player pathway or additional opportunities for every kid involved in a program, whether that's placement with local clubs, teams, or programs that we partner with to continue their development and love for the game after the age of eight, or placement into elite soccer programs like the Philadelphia Union Academy or FC Delco, and potentially placement into private schools that we have connections with as well. So there's a lot of things that we we look to do and it's all to improve quality of life and, and provide these opportunities for, for these kids. Tell us more specifically about the program. It sounds like you are training young athletes. Tell us mm-hmm. how it works, how long it is, and of course it is free, but how do we uh, get kids involved? With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The SWAG is a philanthropically funded, no-cost training, soccer training program for ages four to eight. You can look up the schedule on our website or get in contact with me uh, directly. My email is nick.bibs at theswag.org. We run programming every single day (laughs) in the city of Philadelphia. We're in different locations. We break it down by region and then we try to hit different pockets within the region on on multiple days of the week. We have a schedule on our website and you can see at any time, whether we're in West Philly, Northwest Philly, North Philly, Southwest Philly, we want to stay present and we want to stay consistent within those areas that we run programming in. It's wonderful work that you're doing. And uh, if people, again, want more information, what's the website for more info? Uh, the swag-dot-org. You can uh, find us online. My contact information is on the website as well. Please feel free to reach out to me directly. One more question. I, I'm just curious what you think about Philadelphia's chances of earning a, a, the opportunity to host the World Cup. Oh, that's fantastic. Another great opportunity for us to to grow the sport, not only in the city of Philadelphia, but in this country. We are certainly excited for that. (laughs) Yeah, let's cross our fingers. That would be pretty awesome for the city and for the sport of soccer, or as they call it in in every other part of the world, football. football. (laughs) (laughs) It is football. (laughs) It is football. That's right. Nick Bibbs, Director of Coaching for The Swag. It is a fast-growing Philadelphia soccer program reaching over 2,000 inner-city young children of color. Thank you so much for all that you're doing. Thank you. One of the highlights of my uh, of my life was being honored by the AIDS Fund in 2012, I believe, during a time in which they gave out an award called Favorite Straight Person. And I was that person for that year. It's not the biggest award that I've gotten in terms of size, but it's the one that's biggest in my heart. That was delivered to me during the annual and fabulous event called Black Tie Gay Bingo. We're going to be talking about this event, which is so much fun for such a great cause with two folks. Rob Reichert, Executive Director of the AIDS Fund Philadelphia. Sarah Thompson, who is a longtime volunteer for the AIDS Fund. Thank you both for joining us today. And uh, Rob, it's coming up again. The fabulous, the wonderful Black Tie Gay Bingo. Tell us 
Give us a sense of what we can look forward to when we attend this fabulous event. Well, we're really looking forward to having our Black Tie Gay Bingo on March 26th. It is a spinoff of our monthly gay bingo that we're actually in our 25th season of right now. But it's a more formal, a uh, little more festive event. Uh, we hold it at the Lowe's Hotel and has all of the components of a traditional black tie event. We have a silent auction. We have dinner. We have dancing. But we have layered on top of all that uh, gay bingo, and it's hosted by our fabulous bingo verifying divas. So they like to say, you know, they're there and they're going to be dancing. And this is your opportunity to dance with the bingo verifying divas. It's just a fun night. I believe it's the most fun black tie event in the city. Most of those events are pretty boring and stuffy, but not ours. Oh, no, it's far from stuffy, the opposite of stuffy. (laughs) Well, let's talk about why We need to support this wonderful organization and this fabulous event, which is so much fun. Sandra Thompson, you're a longtime volunteer for the AIDS Fund. And I wonder if you can tell us why you have been so steadfast in your support of this organization over these many years. It's been a very proud affiliation. When we began the battle against HIV and AIDS, not a lot of people came to the front lines that weren't part of the gay community. One of the things the AIDS Fund did was to reach out to the general population, the general community, and make sure they understood that we were in the literally in the fight for people's lives. And as part of that, we needed to raise money. We needed to raise awareness. We needed to bring folks together. And the AIDS Fund has been successful in that through, especially through the AIDS Walk. Thousands of people have participated over the years in the AIDS Walk. I remember many AIDS Walk mornings before sunup, setting up tables and freezing our tails off. But it was all worth it when walkers started to show up excited, enthusiastic about raising money that would go back into the community to aid service organizations to provide services to individuals uh, with HIV and AIDS. Everybody has an origin story about what it is that inspired them to take on a, a particular cause or particular issue. And I wonder, how was it for you? Why did you decide to take this on as something that you would want to put all of your energy and volunteer spirit behind? Quite honestly, it started through work. I was employed with uh, Babashi. We had a board seat at the table of the eight, which was then from all walks of life. And we want to say that uh, Babashi at the time was the first organization that addressed the issue of sexual health in communities of color, particularly black communities, uh, blacks right. educating blacks about sexual health issues, right, Babashi? <laughs> I <Yes>. remember. <laughs> <laughs> I was asked to just sit in for our representative at a board meeting, and I was hooked. Yeah. It's like, this is the way we're going. We're going to make a difference with, with this epidemic. And you've stayed with it ever since. I stayed with it, yeah. That's wonderful. And that, I guess, Rob, is what I've noticed about the AIDS Fund is that the many volunteers that I've met, there's some that are brand new that are just starting for the first time, but there are some that have been there for from day one and really just so passionate about supporting this effort to to end AIDS in our community, HIV. The AIDS Fund has really shifted 
its focus in a way that's very meaningful. And I wonder if you can talk a bit about how your funding is is really addressing people where they are. About five years ago, we evolved our mission. As, as Sandra said, we were founded with the mission of supporting HIV organizations in our community who were doing on the front line, doing incredibly hard work. But an AIDS fund was founded at a time when there were not a lot of government funding for HIV. And a lot of these organizations were new because at the time, the organizations that were in existence really didn't want to support people with HIV and the special needs. And so that's where AIDS Fund was founded. We have our roots in that kind of grassroots effort. I like to say we remain a intentionally grassroots organization. We raise our funds a little at a time through our walkers in the AIDS Walk and people who buy tickets to come to our gay bingo events. Remain committed to really being in the community and part of the community. But five years ago, we really looked at where things were today and where the greatest need was and how AIDS Fund could have the greatest impact moving forward. And so we evolved our mission. We provide small micro grants to people living with HIV. So it covers things like they fall behind on their rent or their utilities, or they need a walker or a cane or any number of things that come up because HIV has increasingly become a disease of poverty. Those who receive the grants that we do, 75% of them live below the federal poverty line and half of them live below 75% of the federal poverty line. Mm. So we're talking about living on $9,000 a year. It doesn't take much for you to end up in a financial emergency when you're budgeted that tightly. Right. What we want to do is help people to live a long and healthy life with HIV. That's our ultimate goal and to end the epidemic. The way we want to do that is making sure that we keep people in care. You know, it's very hard to maintain your health if you're living on the street, if you're evicted from your apartment, if you're couch surfing. We prioritize keeping people in housing, which keeps them in care. And if we keep people in care, we know they'll not only live a long and healthy life with HIV, they also will not pass the virus on to somebody else. Because if they have an undetectable viral load, they will not pass the virus on to somebody else. I think that's what is so striking about where we are right now is that there are medications that allow people to live long, basically long lives. But it's really all about making sure people get the care that they need. And if they don't have a house or a mattress or a refrigerator to put their medications in, there's so many things that can get in the way. And that's where the AIDS Fund is really done such a wonderful job making sure that individuals have what they need in order to get care. Now, Sandra, you've been in this fight for for so long, and I wonder if you could just think about, I mean, just reflect a little bit about where we've come. When you got started, when I remember Babashi back over 30 years ago, people were dying. They got HIV, then AIDS, and then they died usually within two years, right? So you probably... Mm-hmm as all of us have lost people to AIDS, but now we're seeing this whole brand new world. What are your thoughts? Mm -hmm. What are your reflections over these many years? The change has been so significant and so wonderful. You're absolutely right. You know, back then, a diagnosis of HIV was a death sentence. In order to live, people were selling, cashing in their life insurance policies and then dying and not having any life insurance. 
People were, you know, just making plans and saying their goodbyes. People were desperate. And that is not the case now. People are living well and to the extent possible, living healthy. One of the things the AIDS Fund provides is stability. And with stability, you can have healthcare that is significant and meaningful. You're not prioritizing trying to find rent money over going to your doctor's appointment. And that is so important. And I think stability has been key to what is happening in this epidemic at this point. I think community understanding has been key, which has been another role that the AIDS Fund has played. I think especially through the AIDS Walk, um, bringing all those people together on the parkway once a year with lots of great media coverage, people excited to be there, schools challenging one another really helped people understand that we were talking about people. We weren't talking about a disease. We were talking about people and people's lives. So the change in my mind has just has been positively remarkable. Uh, we, We have a ways to go, but people that are able to say, I am now undetectable and you can see the light in their eyes. Mm for people to understand that it can still be transmitted. And we need to make sure people understand that and work with people. Don't let your guard down. But there is a light at the end of the tunnel, and it is no longer a freight train. That is wonderful. And uh, whoever thought that in 1983, uh, when I first started working here, that we would be talking about a time when there could be a cure. We certainly have mm-hmm. come to a time when people can live and not die when they get HIV mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. positive. And so all this goes to say that we should be supporting a wonderful cause, which is the AIDS Fund. And what better way to do it than to go to Black Tie Gay Bingo. If people would like to know more about that event, getting tickets and all that stuff, where do they go, Rob? They can visit our website at AIDSFundPhilly.org. We're really excited. You know, the reason Sandra's here today, we didn't really talk about this, is that we are presenting her with our first fierce and fabulous award. We retired the favorite straight person award that you mentioned earlier (laughs) and have evolved that into our fierce and fabulous award. Sandra's getting it because of all of her work in the community over the years. I had the privilege of my first job in the HIV world was Sandra was my boss at Babashi. I know her level of commitment to this issue has been all these years. I'm really excited. We're honoring Sandra with this first Fierce and Fabulous because it certainly describes her. Fierce and Fabulous. What a great name for an award. And clearly, Sandra Thompson very much deserved. Uh, Rob, once again, what's the website for more info? AIDSFundPhilly.org. Rob Reichert, Executive Director of the AIDS Fund Philadelphia. Sarah Thompson, longtime volunteer for the AIDS Fund and the recipient of the AIDS Fund Black Tie Gay Bingo's Fierce and Fabulous Award. Thank you both for joining us today and see you at Gay Bingo Black Tie. You can listen to all of today's interviews by going to our station website and typing in keyword community. You can also listen on the iHeartRadio app, keyword Lorraine with one R. Follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Lorraine Ballard. I'm Lorraine Ballard Morrill, and I stand for service to our community and media that empowers. What will you stand for? You've been listening to Insight, and thank you. Hello. 
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.